Welcome to the Revelation On Demand podcast, the only eschatology podcast that I know of done by amateur theologians that are interested only in what the Bible has to say about the end times. I'm your host, J.D. Myers, and I'm joined today as usual by Mr. Cry- Mr. Chris Hess. How you doing, buddy? Good morning, good morning, good morning, and good day to you all, or good evening to anyone that's listening to this. We always appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate it when people check us out, so... We're going to catch up on what's going on in the world today. Uh, uh, not really too much difference. We're still in the swings of this election season where people are getting kind of crazy and really polarized in their views. But I, I did some research uh, because it just interested me. I was wondering if we're in a more violent or riotous time than normal. And what I found out was that not really. Uh, back in the 60s, there was almost... 37 riots i believe in the the decade of the 60s so i mean this between the 2000s and now we really haven't had much many more than i'd say uh 12 so we're not we're not extremely far we'll see how the, the rest of the 2020 you know turns out but as far as right now there's only been one major riot and another one that's been classified as a minor riot so I don't know how it is over where you're living, but that's the kind of research I did this week on do we live in more turbulent times than normal? The only thing I would have to say to protest to that is, well, the protests in regards to relating riots and protests is that um, the destructive behavior of protesting almost justifies a riot. And we've had multiple nationwide uh, ones that stem from a singular instance. And it makes you kind of wonder how many are we actually accumulating for? Because in some cities right now, it's night by night. You know, recently we have Wisconsin and L.A. even pop back up uh, because of the incidents that had taken place there. Um, I, my prayers go out to anyone that's serving in the area, as well as for the, you know, anyone that who has been subjected to or has been put in danger. You know, try to think about those people as well. Because they are, they aren't, they shouldn't have to be alone as victims, and their names should be remembered as well. But continue. Yeah, no, I was just saying that as far as like classified riots, like big riots, there, there's only been one or two, and, and the protesting. As long as a protest stays, you know, peaceful and no one actually gets hurt from that, it doesn't get classified as a riot. So, yeah, we've had a lot of protests this year and for both reasons, you know, both for and against what the government's doing. But I think right now, as far as violence is concerned, it's not particularly more violent than, say, other points in our history. So now if it turns out to be a lot more like the sixties where in the next, you know, nine years we have forty some odd riots, then yeah, it was it was definitely more and that's just, you know the 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 spectrum that I looked at, that was the, the kind of statistics I took. I wasn't I wasn't getting deep deep into it. I was just trying to get a general oversense of is it more violent now than it has been in the past? And I, I don't think it has. So I don't have a I don't have a contest to that. Um because you're you're smart and you look up your numbers and you want factual evidence to that too. Instead of a you know philosophically speaking, well in let's say for example, uh Seattle it turned into a riot, then it turned peaceful and then it was 
you know, Peace Land, which turned into another riot. Anyway, um, you know, let's try to keep the bad examples out of there. Um, so you have something that you wanted to bring up here, and that is because uh, you're being affected out in your state, Colorado. Yeah, yeah, we're having, a, we're getting a lot of smoke from the fires along the Rockies, and we have several fires close to us, and there's one called the Cameron Peak Fire that's only 50 or so miles away from me, and um, last night we were going into Fort Collins to drop the kids off at their grandparents' house, and as we were driving, we seen the sun was setting behind the smoke clouds, and it was this brilliant neon red and it was just so eerily beautiful the color of the sun and you could look at it without even having sunglasses on or anything that's how that's how much smoke was blocking the sunlight and it was filtering out all but like the low red this this just bright red and it was my wife called it biblical and I had to agree with her but I, I thought it was beautiful in a eerie sort of way it was kind of had to go with what we're talking about, you know, the end of the world. It, it seemed like a scene right out of the end of the world. Spirituality in its finest form can be presented in, I mean, I, I think spirituality is ever present and that God is ever present. Um, but in instances in which we can see it to the naked eye and relate it to something direct, that's always a signifier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it Man, definitely that's... gave me something to, to ponder on that night as we went out to, on a date and everything, you know, just kind of thinking, is this is this the end, you know? Because that's, that's kind of what everyone's thinking at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't argue with you there. There's a lot of that going on right now. I mean, we jump it back and forth of saying, well, this can't possibly be the end times because we're not getting 100% notified on, you know, what are the biblical... Uh, specific traits that we get from scripture and stuff like that, but also as people, not to discredit anything that the Bible says, as people, we recognize the presence of God in however he presents himself. Yeah. yeah. So, you want to tell our listeners about what we learned last episode? Yes. So, last episode, we went over um, the, uh, the following seals and, uh, yes, we went over the seals of the scroll in heaven, which the Lion of Judah needs to open. If you didn't know, John saw the Lion of Judah as this broken-down lamb, the the lamb of God who is to take the throne of, uh, of God's throne because, I mean, the man's got to be doing something. Uh, the man. <laughs> God's got to be doing something every day, so maybe he's just a seat warmer, but he's not. He's the Lion of Judah. He's prosperous. Um, so we went over the force horsemen and that was the first of four seals that we, uh, the first of the seven seals, but the first four seals, it revealed, uh, four horsemen. First one being, uh, I always recognize it by how they're blatantly, um, addressed. And the first one is the horsemen of war who, War, or uh, like, how else have you heard it? Uh, the first horseman's conqueror. He's the Antichrist. Oh, thank you. Second the con- conquest. Yes, conquest. The Antichrist. He rides a white horse. There's uh, there's a name for each of the riders, and then there's the color of their horse. 
or the appearance of their horse. Yeah. Uh, second one is war. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Each of them have specific methods of uh, eliminating people, uh, as well as certain artifacts that they carry. Third one is famine. And they ride... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Do they ride the... Uh, was it a... Black. Thank you. I was going to say a black horse. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say black, guy, honestly. Yeah. And... You know, he's an interesting fellow, too. He actually has the job to be restricted in how much he kills. He's got to leave resources for humanity to survive by order of the cherubim, the, yeah, the four beasts. Yeah, and what that was is that he's not allowed to withdraw. He's not allowed to block God's grace during this time. He's allowed to make it so that we suffer and struggle and have to basically work every day just to survive, but he's not allowed to withdraw or to block God's grace from us. So even in this time, we're supposed to be able to receive God's grace. And the last of the four horsemen that was mentioned in this divine scroll, the scroll, um, it, just to take a step back, is supposed to unite heaven and earth. Um and that's the reason why we're going over this. But the four uh, the four horsemen are all renowned. You can read about them. You can hear about them in music. But anyway, the very last one is, drumroll please, Death. Yes. And he rides a pale green horse, if you take the Latin definition of, yeah. uh, of the way that he's described. Mm -hmm. And Death is pretty self-explanatory. He wields a scythe. Uh, and he's there to... Reap souls. Yes, reap souls. Uh, conquest and war have their own designated jobs, so to speak, too. But if you think about it, um, you know, death, that's his primary function, is to just eliminate. Yeah, and, and the way death eliminates is through plague and pestilence. So... Right, it's and that's that directly death. relates to what we're going on right now, what's with, what's with what we're going on right now, right? Yeah, right, with the coronavirus, but there was no war that started this, so that's why I think it's not quite, you know, lined up right. Remind me to mention something to you after the podcast about um, the unifying of all faiths, the faith yeah. conference that's supposed to happen this year. Um, Maybe we'll talk about it next episode, too, then. Yes, Sounds because I want to review some of that info. But anyway, okay, why don't we get to move on with this? So seven seals, like I said, first of four seals were the four horsemen, fifth and sixth. We only went over six out of the seven seals. The fifth was the martyrs, martyrs of past and present were calling out to the Lord to be avenged. And that is to ultimately carry on with the sixth seal, which was to cause cataclysm on the earth and basically wipe out the rest of the population or those who are incapable of holding faith or reclaiming themselves in the eyes of the Lord and with, you know, uh, his love and a presence. And it's, you know, the stars will fall. The earth will give way to the sea. The mountains will rise. Yeah, all sorts of fun stuff. It's quite, quite the cataclysm. So, Something I missed last episode, and of course, you know, I, I have this section on here, and it says, 
something I missed last episode, but it's usually just one thing I missed last episode. There's a, usually a lot of things that I've missed when I go over this. This is not, as I've said before, in-depth research. This is as much as I can do in about two weeks, you know. Uh, so what we were talking about the people who called on the mountains to fall down on them when they were under God's wrath and they wanted the mountains to protect them. Uh, we, were, we were talking how these people are hardened in their sin. And I was thinking about it, and we need to avoid becoming like them. So when we sin, we need to immediately recognize it and repent so that we avoid becoming hardened in sin. Because every time you do something that's wrong, it's easier to do something that's wrong again. It's just the brain science behind the way humans work. We we do something once, and it becomes easier to do it again. And of course, sin is most often associated with just carnal pleasures. So it's really easy to do something, get the dopamine hit for it, and go, oh, now your brain associates this thing with that that action, which isn't the best thing to do. It's like it's even like drinking coffee, for instance. If you take a sip of coffee, you get a dopamine hit. Uh, it's not physically addictive, but it still gives you this dopamine hit, and now you've associated happy the happy drug, dopamine, that your body creates naturally with taking that sip of coffee or say take a a worse thing for example like taking a hit off of a a pipe or something you know so when you when you sin and you don't immediately recognize it and try and stop it and repent to god and you know cry out to god help me become the person you want me to be you are basically laying the groundworks for making sin easier and easier and this is why when people start going down the wrong path, they just seem to fall off faster and faster, especially if there's no correction. So, as I was saying, we need to avoid becoming hardened in our sin and becoming like these people who are so you know, blind to the reality that they could just repent and accept you know, the, the grace that God is willing to give them. Instead of doing that, they think they're so hardened in their ways that they're going to call down on the material things that they have, you know, been sinning to get to save them. So that's yeah. where this this idea is, is we need to, when we sin, repent, instead of going, ah, oh, it's okay, you know. So it's just, it's making sure you correct yourself before it goes too far. That's really duty-bound there. I like that. Um, and yeah, the devil and sin corrupt are capable of corrupting. You know, they have. We live in a fallen world. live on a fallen earth. They corrupt our resources, and those resources, or our behaviors as well, can corrupt us. And no one's perfect. And I say that to a certain degree, everyone is corrupted in their own right. Some people take pride in that. Uh, but yeah, that, that essential, that essential um, learning how to manage your consequences and not having to recognize all of them the minute you're getting punished by literally God himself, um, which is never, it's never too late to repent. But, you know, maybe instead of having to deal with divine punishment to the point of cataclysm, it's smart to start to take a look at some of this and be like, okay, this is actually a reasonable way and a logical way of managing your life. Yeah, and I can almost guarantee everyone, me included, is sinning in some way that 
they don't even think about all that much. So just, you know, take a minute, talk to God, ask him, what am I doing that's wrong that I would be more in line with your will if I stop doing? And I guarantee you, you will get an answer and you will not like it. So just, you know, if you want to become better, if you want to become more like God's plan, that's what you got to do. And it sucks, but, you know, it's it's just part of getting better, right? <laughs> no, sin. You just underestimated what God's trying to reveal through you through your speech. Yeah, exactly. I might be doing something, but I'm not sure I'm aware of it. I know you're completely situationally aware. Uh, but, yeah, there is times that, like, you know, we, we adapt to certain mindsets. We do certain things, especially those who live a life of sin. And it becomes secondary nature. But that doesn't mean that it's not something that, you know, you can't realize at some point or have, uh, I love to use the word epiphany over. Yeah, I, I like to use the word apocalypse because in Greek it means revelation. So, <laughs> but we went over that in the first episode. So would you be so kind to read the scripture for us? Yes, as much as I love our talking points, we got to read. Yep. All right. Revelations, or the book of Revelation, chapter 7. <clears throat> After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four, to the four angels, who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were uh, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. Lastly, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Let's move on to verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, John, these in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know, and he said, These are they 
who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence, with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So, we're going to go back to the top. Go ahead and interrupt me if you ever have a question, Chris, because I'm sure if you have the question, our listeners may have the question. So, we're going to talk about the four corners. And, and before we get too far into this, we need to remember that the people who we are, who wrote this, who are being written to in the time period, this is a pre-scientific mindset. So, they don't know anything about, you know, the the world being a globe. So, they, they have very much this idea that there's four corners to the earth which also can be a reference to the rose compass, which has four points. So this is all around the world. And when it says the four corners of the earth, it means the entire earth. And I'm, I'm sure most people understand that. It's just, we need to remember they are pre-scientific people and we are scientific people. So we tend to have this issue, especially atheists have this issue where they look at the Bible and say, well, it's not a scientific book. And you know what? They're right. It's not a scientific book. So we just need to keep this mindset when we're reading. And uh, the the wind, what are they talking about when the angels are holding back the wind from the earth? This is God's wrath and judgment. There's many times in the Bible where the wind blow, is blowing from a certain direction that it is, is God's, you know, divine judgment upon something. It's usually with discretion and, and causes drying up of of crops and whatnot. So this wind is God's judgment. And it's also the Hebrew word ruach, which is breath, which we've been over before. <coughs> now, I, I, I'd say identically, we do have north, west, east, and south, which is something that we've, you know, derived from even in the days of what the the, the earth is flat. How do we not know this by now? And, uh, you know, the whole map structure to really make this relatable. Um, I, I would also say, that, to your point, the atheists and uh, their idea of being a little bit nitpicky and saying, well, this isn't scientifically accurate, this isn't scientifically accurate, aren't applying a lot of common sense. You know, as you were saying, th these weren't scientific people, but that doesn't mean that they weren't discouraged by certain information like that. That was what they knew the world to be. Um, you know, you're also taking a rough translation from the Greeks in... Now, do we know for a fact if John was writing this in Greek? Yeah, I think the first... The first, the oldest... Uh, the oldest manuscripts of this book are in Greek. So, yes. Okay. So, I mean, either way... We could have a translation, uh, we could have a translation thing going on there. Uh, if not, I mean that that is also uh, in Leighton's terms. Like I'll apply my own definition to it: a word of phrase, you know, a turn of phrase. Yeah, and and like I said, 
pre the, the biblical people, the people of the biblical times, I should say, not biblical people, but the people of biblical times did not understand the the way they seen the world was uh, very much Aristotle's uh, dome thing, where there's land, there's the great sky, which is the dome, and then there's the sun and the stars are moving beyond in the in the waters that are above and below the earth. So you very much have this. This I this ancient idea of what the Earth looked like it looked more like a dome inside of like a a bubble underwater sort of thing. It's completely fair. I mean, it's all up to perspective. Well, I mean, if you if you go outside without knowing anything about science and you look outside, it looks like you're in a dome. You know. I mean, if I were to travel any more than let's say. 20 miles in my entire lifetime, or if I had never, you know, and coasted on the didn't. sea. Yeah. I mean, it was very, very common for this time period. You would not leave a 20 mile area of where you were born. Traveling great distances in this time was reserved really just for merchants and explorers. And even at that rate, like, how well would you be able to tell, like, wow, this seems really expansive, but how can I honestly fathom for myself, if I could walk in a straight line, how am I going upward or downward? Yeah, no, and the other thing is, is that most people wouldn't climb to the top of a mountain to see the curvature of the Earth. Because if you get up high enough, you can see the curvature of the Earth, but think about it, what, what point, other than climbing to the top of a mountain, would a sheep herder have to climb to the top of a mountain? You know, he's got more important things to worry about. He's got a sheep herd to worry about, you know, so. Right. Any sort of dominion like that. (laughs) No, people, people like these people would not have been interested in how the earth really looks. We've gotten technology and all this other stuff that gives us a bigger picture of God's world and a more clear picture of God's world. But we just need to keep this in mind when we're reading the Bible. This is a pre-scientific people, and, and they think very differently. And we need to we need to get into their mindset to get what was said to them, so that we can, you know, reinterpret it for what it means to us today. Yeah, and not to get political, but if you can be culturally accepting of just about anything today, then you might as well be able to give these people, you know, a cent of credit for living in the time of day that they did. Right, right. So then we're going to move on to the sealing of the foreheads because they're holding back this wind before uh, the seals are all placed. And the seal was really important. I don't know if I mentioned this back when we first talked about seals. But the seal was really important this day because it meant this was the writ of someone important. So to get the seal of God on you would be, you know, God's putting his promise on you. There's this, it's unbroken seal, it's his word enclosed sort of thing, this idea that you only could, most the people who had seals were, were higher up people, the people who had a reason to seal a letter that they needed to only be read aloud to certain people, or to only to be made to certain people. And that seal would tell the recipient if the letter had been tampered with or not. So, that's... I mean, that's, that's go that goes back to... Uh, I, I, I'm not to interrupt you, brother. Uh, that goes back to uh, one of the seven churches that we were talking about where they received that... Um, you talked about it like a specific, specific name for it, but they received this invitation stone that had their name engraved in it, 
And basically, Jesus was handing out invites to heaven, like, hey, what's up? So your culture does this, and I thought it would accumulate for it. And uh, here's a specific stone with your name on it that guarantees your passage to heaven because I know that you're faithful. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that, uh, the big idea, that's that's the same idea. Where we've got this, it's your ticket to heaven sort of thing. And of course, at this time, we're in tribulation, so this is, this is kind of a, a mark that's going to counter the mark of the beast that we're going to see later. So now we're talking about the, the 144,000. These are the, these are the tribes of, 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 um, Jerusalem. And we use the same tribe names that were used in the very beginning of, uh, Exodus back when the tribes were first being formed. And these are most likely people of God, which would be, Jews, the people who are chosen of God, who come to accept the Messiah as their Savior. So these are converted Jews. This is what most people agree on, is that these are people who have come to Christ that were already God-fearing people, so they just had to take the step of accepting Christ. And we have a breakdown of the uh, tribes here, and if you don't you know, remember your tribes from... Uh, Exodus, you wouldn't catch this. In fact, I didn't catch it until I started digging on it. But the tribe of Dan is omitted from this list, most likely due to idolatry in connection with the Antichrist. So this tribe has been struck completely from the record just because I believe they are going to be the group that are heralding in the Antichrist. And I think that's what scholars agree with. Oh, huh. Yeah, and then we have... uh, Manasseh and Joseph are mentioned, and if you've done any studying on the tribes, you know that Manasseh is a subtribe of Joseph, and there's another tribe, a subtribe of Joseph called Ephraim. So the fact that Ephraim isn't named by name, but instead Manasseh and Joseph are named, so Joseph is most likely referring to Ephraim instead, since there's they named Manasseh. Up front, so this is this is much like the idea when Jude when Judah uh, betrayed the apostles and he was he killed himself, so they had to replace him. So they brought in another apostle. Uh, this is the same idea where Manasseh is replacing Dan, since Dan has you know struck themselves from the twelve tribes. So, but Ephraim slighted in this way because they're not perfect. They're not absolutely perfect. So they're they're instead called the tribe of Joseph, saying that Joseph is more you know, more pure than they are. So they 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 still they're still accepted into the, the the number, but they are they're definitely put down a little bit there just because their other tribe of that bigger tribe was named personally. I find that interesting and also a bit of a mind trip when you're naming all these guys because uh, just personally I've known people with all these names and I'm like, oh, they would so do that to them. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, okay, so with these 144,000, that does answer my question that I had and that was about, okay, so why are these people specifically going through tribulation but you're saying it's predominantly the Jewish yeah. that um, resided over that land. And this, this, this is God fulfilling his promise because he said that the Jews 
who he chose to begin with at the very beginning of, of the Bible, they this is the fulfillment of that promise to them about making him the hope to the world. So this is this is just the fulfillment of that. And actually there is a Jewish uh um uh landmark milestone in this year. Let me see. Um I, I might have to look it up. It's I'm not gonna try to name it, but basically it's influencing actually a lot of the Jewish people to be moving over to uh to Israel right now. And um I wanna say it's called or yeah, yeah, here, why don't I look that up while you're uh It's something, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this year, uh, maybe under the circumstances of 2020, whatever the case is, either way, um, was a landmark. And there's a Jewish uh, prophecy, something along the lines of that, that was instated into their faith that this is, in fact, the year of this landmark or this um, anniversary that actually calls the Jewish people to return to Israel and the land of their people. Huh. So we're getting droves and droves and droves of Jewish people from all over the world that are moving out to Israel right now. Oh, it's is it the year 6000? Is that what it's uh, talking about or tell you what, I'm going to look up the news that I saw it on. Because I've heard uh, a lot of this too, studying uh, about some of these these uh, Christian. Uh, I, I'll I'll hesitate not to call them cults, but these Christian people who are trying to figure out when the end of the world is. I've heard a lot about this year six thousand. Oh, uh, I don't know about. That's I don't know about that. Uh, I I, you know, the way that I was hearing it is it's it was gratified as this um. Like this Jewish practice, it's it's literally ingrained into their thing. So, and um, usually that is um, something that would be uh, instated by the Jubilee, which are like basically Jewish prophets, and um, those they've been around for thousands of years. And what they do is they come up with interpretations and mandations for the Jewish people to follow through with. Yeah, based off the based off of the um, in, in case you never know, you never knew this. Um, the Old Testament is practically and mostly is the Jewish faith. Yeah, and their book of the Old Testament is known as the Torah, and they read it in actual Hebrew. Yeah, which is language of the Jews. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I I didn't even. I'll have to look into that again and. Let me know if you find it, because that's that's interesting. But um, carrying on with the great multitudes, so th- th- this is where <coughs> where we get um, the everyone is going to get a chance to get saved, and this great multitude is is a different group from the fourteen thousand or four one hundred forty four thousand, and they are different than the people who are already in the throne room as well. So. We have these people here. This is the people believe this is the fruit of the Great Commission. So many people think that the people who are sa- the Jews who have been saved, these are the people they've converted. So during the tribulation, and this diversity 
that it's describing there is just like on on earth right now we have all these individuals so everyone in heaven will be unique in their own way we're not going to be you know just cookie cutter angels or anything like that so everyone in heaven is going to have their own their own uniqueness to them so we will be able to recognize each other even in heaven even if we don't look the same as we've talked before about what spiritual you know embodiments can look like yeah that's that's really something uh not to interrupt you uh, there are some uh, theologians and like uh, you know theorists that suggest that we will all be unified in this indistinctable unilateral appearance. No matter who you are in heaven, we are literally just brothers and sisters of Christ, and your only distinction is whether you're a brother or a sister in Christ. But I, I, do, I would like to think that we do retain some characteristic for we're all creations of God, and that should be you know, presented in some unique manner or demeanor. Yeah. yeah, and my question to those people is, if we are so uniquely created here on Earth, what makes you think that was an it was a was a wrong thing? You know, because we're not we're not even the same out of the womb. So you can't say that we are not unique. We're we're supposed to be you know just this perfection, like same thing. You know, I I think God loves each one of us individually and creates us individually. So he wants that in heaven as well. So yeah, read in all honesty, read Genesis. Why did he make certain Nephilim unique in their own way? You know, right. right. Lucifer, otherwise is known as the angels name of Satan mm-hmm. was his, in his own right, his own unique angel based off of appearance, even because it is said that uh, he was the angel of music. And it said that he was a literal embodiment of the what would be God's image of how music should be, how music is to become. Hmm. Interesting. I never heard that one either. But well, since you brought him up, I was thinking about this a while ago that uh, someone mentioned to me that the devil and heaven are, you know, like exclusively apart and the devil can't come to heaven. And I was just thinking about this is like, there is a point in Job where he has this, this throne room scene where the devil is challenging God on Job. So I I just told the guy, I was like, well, how did the devil come into the throne room if he's not allowed up there? So just to end that, that floored me when I said that to think that, one of his highest creations that decided to walk away from him is still accepted in his throne room to this day. Like there is no greater betrayal in, in the history of the world than what Lucifer did by betraying God. And yet he's still allowed to come into his throne room until we'll get to it in a later chapter. He is cast from heaven and the final scene is set. Okay, so the only thing I can tell you about that is, at least in the Old Testament, God did put him in exile, manifested him into a physical form, and made him bound to the earth. And that's all I'm going to say, because well, like, you know, that goes back to Adam and Eve and stuff. But all those Nephilim and stuff are in exile. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I, I, get, I get that. I just... I. When when I see things like the throne room where the devil is talking directly to God, I'm not saying he's welcome to stay there. I'm saying he's welcome to come visit God even, 
because God still wants him to repent and return to him, even though he knows it's not going to happen. You know, Right. As far as confrontation, yes, God permits that. The devil doesn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. The devil's just going to do what he wants because that's his characteristic. And, you know, God permits his communication, stuff mm-hmm. like that, because he wants to challenge him. And, you know, inevitably, I think someday that would be, even in God's desire, would be to redeem yeah. him. Because yeah, no, he loves all of his, he loves all of his children. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's, that's going off the deep end a little bit, at least even for me to say yeah. that. Like, we well, all want to see that in everyone. Like, anyone can be forgiven. But we got to remember about, you know, true evil and manifestations of the devil and hell on earth. Yeah. And how can you see those even in the slightest bit redeemable? There is right. a day where every knee shall bow. But, you know, that's a, it's a real moral compromise to start bringing that up. Well, I, I don't think it's a moral compromise. I just think it shows that God desires that. I don't think he won't let it happen unless he does the right form of repentance to come back to him. And he knows that's not going to happen, but it doesn't mean he doesn't want his creation to be the way he created it in the first place. You know, it was the rebellion that started. And of course, God could just force it to happen, but he wants there to be a choice on the matter. And since he knows Lucifer is not going to make the right choice, he already has shown us what's going to happen to him. So you know, yeah, and, and that's on. that's a good that's a good take on it. I, I think you know, let's just draw the line. At, you know, the devil's still <laughs> a bad guy. Yeah. Um, but even those of us who have fallen in the world of sin, you know, if you feel like you're the absolute, absolute utmost worst, utmost worst, God still has a desire for you. Yeah, and I honestly believe that in myself. I thought I was the spawn of Satan, and I was saved. So I think anyone can be saved if they so have the desire. And um, moving on, the palm branches are a sign of victory. This we seen this when uh, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. They were waving palm branches and placing them down on the road before him. But this is the sign of, of you know, we have won. This is praise. This is a way to worship uh, victors in this in back in biblical times. And uh, then we see the white robes again. These, this is we've talked about this before. This is purity. This is salvation. This is being made clean in the blood of Christ. And then these people are like so grateful for their salvation. They cling so hard to their faith that it it kind of puts the same some of the some of the faith that you see today, and it's just crazy. And again, we said these people came out of the great tribulation. They were they were um, going through all these terrible times. So going into what this all means ultimately for us today, and going back through this and talking about it with Chris, I, I think this is really another look into how no matter what we're going through right now, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how chaotic the world is, it ultimately will not matter. If we are in Christ, if we believe in God, we will be with God on the day of glory. And we don't have to worry about, you know, being cast and be separated from hell or from God in as long as we stay true to him. 
even benefit. our yeah even even our worst times it it may seem dark it may seem you know just insurmountable but hang on to god and you will ultimately win like nothing we can ever imagine yeah i i really like that hang on to god you know there's definitely times where i blamed him for stuff and i'm like you know even in my right mind how can i truly blame him yeah Though that being said, it's, you know, that's not the point of this. The point of this is just like to, you know, not just stick through a tough guy or, you know, chin up a woman. It's more of the, you know, it's more of the like, okay, faith really shows. And whether something works out perfectly, exactly the way you want it to, God is, God provides, God is amazing where he can do that. Or you feel like you're still working out a situation and it's a process, it's still something to hang on to because you know that ultimately, um, even in scripture, it tells all these amazing things that will happen and that are capable of happening at any second. Um, That reasonably is an application to your life that you want to have. Because the second you step away, I'm not saying that for everyone, though it's been proven in most people you could you probably think of somebody that you know you're like yeah i kind of wish that they you know remained somewhat faithful or you know we sort of dropped off the map of religion and you notice how lifestyle changes even happen um he's just he's an amazing thing to have and that's a true relationship that you're never going to be inevitably able to break off from you know so I guess in a way of toughening up, you got to just admit, hey, you know, he's the all father. He's the almighty. He's the great father, the almighty. And, uh, you know, he's going to be there no matter what. So it's it's better to talk to him maybe than try to avoid him and put yourself in a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. And we went long. So do you have anything else to add before I wrap us up? No, sir. Thank you so much. All right, cool. Thank you for listening to Revelation On Demand. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch podcasts from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture and we receive no funding from any sources. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact me at revelationondemand at gmail.com. I'll say that again, revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless and see you next time.